Downtown Productions in cooperation with Zone Radio presents Downtown, the podcast. From the historic Zone Radio studios, here's your host, Rich Kimball. Hello, hello, and welcome into Downtown, the podcast, episode number 228. I'm Rich Kimball here with Carrie Haskell. We're brought to you every week by Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. A pair of multi-hyphenates. Our guests this week on the program, multi-talented folks, folks who cannot be combined to just one title. Uh, later on, actor, author, storyteller, playwright, musician, the wonderful Stephen Tobolowsky pays a visit with us. Up first, let's see, actor, stand-up comedian, author, musician, songwriter, talking about Paul Reiser, who has got several different TV series going. Uh, the brand new series, Reboot, his great work on The Boys, Stranger Things, The Kaminsky Method, uh, the recent reboot of his classic series with Helen Hunt, Mad About You. And he's also out on tour doing stand-up as well, including an upcoming appearance here in Maine and perhaps near you. Let's listen to our conversation with Paul Reiser on Downtown. You were with us uh, actually a few years ago before you, yeah. you did the show here in Bangor. Now, at the time we talked about this, Paul, uh, you, as, as we know, uh, the 77th best comedian of all time in that Comedy Central poll. But, but, you know, since we talked to you last, well, it's been a rough few years just through attrition. Uh, you're moving up. I'm thinking if you exercise and eat right, you're going to be in the top <laughs> 10 before too long. Well, you know what? Being number 77 on a list of the top 100, it's nice to be included, but I, I would like to get the number down. So what I do is I drive by the houses of numbers uh, 76 and 5, and I, and I just sort of harass them, hoping that they'll move <laughs> and I can work my way up the list. We're so excited to have you coming to Maine October 21st at the beautiful Waterville Opera House. You, you always come back to stand-up. Is there anything that you do that matches that instant response and feedback from an audience? No, it's really, you know, that's exactly what appeals to me. There's a lot of parts about doing stand-up that I that keep bringing me back. I, you know, when I started, that's all I wanted to do. I just wanted to be a stand-up. I didn't really say, I want to be on TV, I want to be in movies. That was sort of, I know that stuff is out there and that happens, but that wasn't the goal. And so... Now and after Mad About You, and now especially all these shows that I've been so busy with, people say, well, why are you, why are you going out and doing these dates, these stand-up? You don't need to. I go, no, I do need to, personally. I just That's the fun part. Everything else is work, you know? But stand-up is truly, every night I get off, I go, man, that was fun. That was just fun. And, uh, you know, there aren't a lot of things you can do in your 60s that feel exactly like they did when you were 18. <laughs> stand-up is maybe the only one. It's like it actually feels like... It's as, it's as exciting and as fun and as challenging and, and unpredictable as, as it was when the first time you go on stage. So uh, to me, it's always I, I try and do it as often as I can and, and squeeze in weekends here and there and, and uh, looking forward to, to being in the... Uh, I've never been in an opera house, by the way. Waterville Opera House sounds very fancy. You'll need tails. Do you have tails, Paul? Yes, I was told. I was absolutely... Either that or some sort of operatic costume, like a Viking helmet or something. That'll work, yeah, that, definitely. <laughs> I, I, I wonder, is it easier to do comedy as a known quantity? People know your work and, and already like you, and that's why, why they're there. Or does it create an elevated set of expectations for you? That's an interesting question. I think both are true. 
you know, I had taken a long time off. We talk about this. I had taken a long time off of doing stand-up. And so when I went back in, I would do what I always did, just go down to the local comedy club. And so when I went back the first time a few years ago, the audience is like the first response. Is like, oh, wow, isn't that great? What a surprise. Nice guy. The guy we know. What a nice surprise. The guy from TV. That lasts about 40 seconds. <laughs> <laughs> and then they look at you like, why is it you're here? I'm like, uh, what, did, what did you want to tell us? I'm like, yeah, then you have to have, <laughs> you have to have something to talk about. But um, it's true when you start out, you just, you know, you, you're, these clubs, you'll make 20 people uh, going on stage at a night, uh, every night, and you have to somehow find a way to be different than the guy before you or the one after you. And uh, now, what's fun for, for getting to do a theater like the Waterville Opera House, you get to like. You don't have to push that hard. Like they already bought a ticket. We must like you. <laughs> and 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 I do feel this connection that people at this point people know me from from so many different things. And and I can kind of look in the audience and go, okay, that's a mad about you couple. That guy is from the boys. That older couple they they must have seen Kaminsky Method. And those kids are from the Stranger Things. You know. And and um, so it is this very diverse group. And. Uh, it's just it's it, it, but there's a connection. I do feel like when I walk in, I was like, I feel like I know these people, and they certainly know, like feel like they know me. So it uh, makes it does make it easier. We're talking with Paul Reiser here on Downtown. Uh, I want to talk about a number of the things you're involved in, but I, I would be remiss if I didn't bring up one of my favorite projects of yours in recent years. There's Johnny, which uh, to me felt like such a great love letter to comedy, but also you and I are about the same vintage that. That magical time in the early 70s when there was nothing more exciting than staying up, turning on Carson, and seeing who the comedians were. Yeah. Oh, well, listen, God bless you for, for knowing and uh, knowing that show, because that was a show that was dear to my heart that I created. I'm not in, but it was a labor of love, and we worked on it for many years. And you can see it's on Peacock now. It's finally found a home. Um, and we only did it one time, seven episodes, and it was about... Yeah, a young kid gets a job as like the gopher behind the scenes of the Tonight Show in 1972, and we did it in uh, partnership with Johnny Carson's company. And so we had use of the tapes and archives, and we could go into the library and pick out any tape we want. So for me, uh, you know, I, it, watching these tapes, it was takes place in 72, so I'm looking at all these tapes. 72, I was 15, 16. And I was like, yeah, probably. I was in high school and I'm watching, you know, the thrill staying up late. Don't let your parents know that you had the TV on at midnight <laughs> to watch George Carlin and to watch Steve Martin, Albert Brooks, Rodney Dangerfield. And what I rem what I was struck with was watching these clips and these shows, how well I remembered them, realizing I haven't seen them in 45 years. But television back when you all didn't have when you couldn't record and you couldn't stream and you couldn't watch everything every minute uh television was more important to you so if you saw something it went into your memory bank and you really held on to it in a way that isn't really possible anymore well you had that sense of urgency to it oh my gosh it's almost 11:30 carson's on i got i have yes. to be there yeah now it's like oh, i'll watch it later you know on the <laughs> treadmill i'll watch it on on the bike um yeah, it had a, it had much more importance, and if you missed it, it didn't. It wasn't around available for you the next day, so it it, it was definitely uh, took a bigger uh, chunk of your memory, and it was 
more important to you. Well, it's a wonderful series. There's Johnny, as Paul said, available on Peacock. Jane Levy, so great in it as she is in everything. And uh, you worked with her again uh, over in Ireland recently, uh, shooting a film that you wrote. Can you tell us a little bit about The Problem with People? Yes, The Problem with People is a movie I wrote. uh, Basically, I wrote it because I wanted to go back to Ireland. I had been there years ago and just loved it. And um, so I came up with this story where there were two two distant cousins who've never met and apparently are the descendants of the two sides of the family that have had a generations-long feud. And one of them makes an effort, and the Irish side of the cousin of the family calls me in, this, in, in New York and says, let's bury the hatchet, let's make peace. And so I have to go over to Ireland, and we have this lovely get-together, and then it goes horribly wrong, and comedy ensues. And Jane Levy uh, plays my daughter. And uh, she was she was so great in, in There's Johnny. And I just always wanted to work with her again. So when I said, oh, I think I have this the role, come play my daughter. So she got to come to Ireland too. And uh, if you haven't been, it's like Maine, but even uh, more green. <laughs> well, looking forward to it. And that'll be out, uh, what, spring of 23? Spring, spring or early summer next year, yeah. It's fantastic. Uh, Stranger Things was and still is such a cultural phenomenon, a great role as Dr. Sam Owens. I, I kept wondering early on, wow, is, is Paul going to be a good guy? It was a little hard to tell uh, at first year. But I have to think, was the question most people have asked you about the show, when's the new season coming? Well, you, by the way, the, the question that I get is like, are you a good guy or a bad guy? And I'm saying, <laughs> I don't, I still don't know. Mm. Like, at first you think he's bad, then he turns out, well, he seems to be pretty good, but is he really? And then, and somebody finally said, she goes, I love the show, I love you, but I don't think you're all good. I think there's a little of both. And I said, well, isn't everybody a little good <laughs> and a little not good? Um, so they're working on the fifth season now. I think that'll be the final season. But whether I'm in it or not remains to be seen. I, they haven't told me, so I'm sitting by the phone. As soon as I get off with you, I'm going to just sit by the phone and uh, find out if I'm coming back or not. Because I don't even know if I'm alive. They, <laughs> I got beaten up a little in season four, right, and right. Then they left me. So I might still be at the bottom of a basement. I don't know. Well, you know, they did that to David Harbour, too, and we weren't sure he came That's back. That's right. But him, I was pretty confident he'd be back. <laughs> uh, let's talk a little bit about the boys uh, where you play the legend uh, would it be safe to say that that uh, that role is a little bit stan lee and more than a dollop of robert evans i think that's very fair uh i think it was conceived as a little uh stan lee but we we i say the, the robert evans kind of an old school hollywood producer whose heyday is you know several years behind him but he he likes to bring it up as often as he can. Um, so, you know, it was really a mixture of a lot of people, and, and, and um, it was really fun. And that's not the kind of – The Boys is such a great show, and it's not the kind of show that I would generally watch or be in, but it was such a cool thing to be invited to. And, and uh, once I started watching it, I said, oh, I get what they're doing. It's really it's really over the top, but it's so far over the top that it becomes funny and even in the dark parts, it's funny and, and so smart. So that was great fun to be included and invited to come play that. And I, I heard you, you tell our, our friends on the station next door that it was your son that told you, yeah, you, you need to do this. It's a great show. Yeah, I, I get all my, my career advice from my son. <laughs> or sometimes I go, Dad, don't do that one. Don't do that one. So he's my you know cultural canary in the coal mine, and, and uh, I check with him always. Uh, the Kaminsky Method, uh, such a great show. Jane Seymour has been on with us before. Uh, the role yeah. of Martin Schneider, my God, what a 
what a wonderful role. And of course, light years away uh, from the legend, but it was so good. And that the opportunity for you speaking in front of the acting class, my God, that was, that was just a masterclass. Oh, that was a fun scene. Thanks. Yeah, it's a, it's a very unique show. And, and uh, Chuck Lorre, who created the show, is, you know, he's the king of half-hour comedy, the Big Bang Theory and, and Two and a Half Men and Mom and everything. Um, and I, I know him for years. And, and this show was such a departure, such a, a fresh way to do half-hour comedy. It was very, very funny, but very touching and very real. You know, half-hour shows sometimes are just about you know, big laughs and getting the audience to laugh. Here, there's no laugh track. There's no audience. It's just actual people. You know, they're as funny as people are and as not funny as people are. And uh, I called him just to tell him how great the first season was, and I joked that we should do something like together. And I said, you know, that two old guys sitting in a car sounds like I could do that. <laughs> and he said, you know, it's funny you say that because there's a role in this show. Uh, maybe you'd like to come on this show. I went, yes, yes, I would. Thank you. I'll be right there. So that was a no-brainer. It was great. It was great fun. And getting to work with Michael Douglas and Alan Arkin, you know, these guys are actual legends. So, yeah, it was great, great, great fun. And you've got a new series uh, coming up uh, starting September 20th from uh, the creative mind of Steve Levitan, the man who brought us Modern Family. What a cast. Uh, you, Rachel Bloom, Judy Greer, Keegan-Michael Key, Johnny Knoxville. Tell us a little bit about Reboot. Yeah, it's an unbelievable cast. That's another, this is another, you know, sometimes you have to think about saying yes. This was a no-brainer. Uh, reboot is, the show's called Reboot, which is confusing to some people. They go, a reboot of what? No, no it's called <laughs> Reboot. And it is about, you know, there's been so many shows, and Mad About You included, that were, that have been brought back and, and rebooted. And so Steve Levitin decided to do a show what, about what is it like behind the scenes of bringing back people who have not been together for 20 years and the show you know it was a family cute safe family show but now somebody wants the new writers want to make it hip and 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 uh you know culturally relevant and uh so it's really it's totally behind the scenes of making a show and it felt very real it was really funny and i play the guy who originated the show that's being now rebooted and of course i want to keep it as it was jokey and light and there's the new young writer they bring in wants to make it edgy and and so there's a cultural clash but it, the cast man it's just so they're so funny and uh, it, it's uh i hope we get to make more i, I think we will it's true yeah i love the mad about you reboot and and it seemed obviously terrific acting skills involved but it sure seemed like you and helen hunt fell right back into that chemistry yeah you know that we we had discussed you know, after the show originally ended, we were friends and we, you know, would see each other all the time. So it wasn't like we had to reacquaint ourselves. But there was something about getting together with all the cast, and then you get onto that stage, and you know, they rebuilt, they reassembled it, you know, brick for brick, mm. exactly like it. But we had to sort of redress it because it's twenty years later. Maybe they bought a new couch in twenty years. Maybe they <laughs> painted. Um, but it was we were laughing at how ridiculously quickly we felt like, yeah, we haven't been gone for 20 years. We Maybe we took a week off. You know, It was just we all fell into it, and, and it was great fun. And, you know, we felt long and hard about coming back because we were so happy with the way we ended it in 1999. So why why should we open it up? And We might mess it up. And we thought, no, we, we, we're we not going to stink up the joint. We'll, we'll have fun. Let's do it once. And um, what was really fun about it was – we got. To, we weren't trying to reboot it in the sense of let's 
do another season and pretend we're 30 years old. Like, no, we're we're in our 60s now. So these are not the same character. The same. These are it's a different point in their life, and they're older, you know. And and uh, what is it like when you're no longer newlyweds? You're at the other end. Your kid that you were talking about having a baby someday. They're now leaving the nest, and you're older, and you don't hear as well, and you don't walk as quickly, and uh, you not all your dreams have come true. So there was a lot of stuff to write about that we really enjoyed digging into. It's the 40th anniversary this year of uh, one of my favorite films, Diner. We've had a chance over the years to to talk with Kevin Bacon, Michael Tucker, Steve Gutenberg. When when you were playing the part of Modell, did you guys realize that you were you're making something that would have the kind of legs this film no, has had? No, nobody ever knows that. You know, for me, that was the first movie, first job I ever had. So I didn't. Uh, yeah, I was just thrilled that, that there was a camera and trucks and everything. So uh, yeah, I would have done it if it was you know Porky's Nine. I you know, it was like, oh, it's a movie. And uh, it wasn't until we saw it, we went, oh, this is really good and different. And, and over the years, it has really uh, proven to be a big part of people's lives. Yeah, we had a few months ago, they had an event here to commemorate the 40th anniversary. And uh, Gutenberg and Kevin and Tim Daly and I, we got together, we had the screening. And we all kind of, you know, looked at us and we fell right back into where we were. But when we did it, it was for all of us, it was our, you know, first real big breakthrough. And here we are 40 years later. I think it was Kevin Bacon. He said, have you guys noticed this when you get a new job and you, you show up? You look around and you're the oldest person on the set by far. It's like, yeah, you're older than the camera guys and the grips and the truck drivers. Like, oh, my God, when did this happen? And uh, it's just, you know, we are by far older than <laughs> than anybody. But uh, it's always nice to be associated with that particular film because it was so it was so uh, such a big part of people's lives. Paul, thank you so much. Great to talk with you again. Love all the work you're doing on television and film, and can't wait to see you at the Waterville Opera House on October 21st. Looking forward to seeing you. That is the uh, terrific Paul Reiser here on Downtown the Podcast. A word from Cross Insurance, and we'll return with Stephen Tobolowski after this. Since its founding in 1954, Cross Insurance has grown from a small family-owned agency that started in Bangor, Maine, into one of the largest super regional insurance agencies in New England. With the network of offices throughout New England, Cross Insurance works with top carriers to provide maximum value to you, your family, and your business. We are proud to be the official insurance broker of the New England Patriots and would welcome the chance to provide security for your team. For more information, visit CrossInsurance.com. Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. about actor Stephen Tobolowsky. Oh, yeah. Uh, we'll get that story, a terrific Stevie Ray Vaughan story, and more. As the multi-talented Stephen Tobolowsky joins us here on Downtown. Hey, Rich. Good, good to talk to you here in sunny California. Sunny California with a, a cat at your side. It doesn't get much better than that. It doesn't get much better than that. We have a little too much sun right now. We've had several days now over uh, 
100 and over 105 generally. So that means that the outdoor rabbit must come inside and go to the green bathroom, which is the location long storied for hot animals. Hot animals have to go to the green bathroom, and we close the door. And if guests come over, we have to explain, you know, there's a rabbit in the bathroom. <laughs> you just have it's the only really cool place because of the tiles. And, you know, I can't have a dead rabbit. So, Right now, the rabbit is hopping free in the green bathroom. Wow. Now, what about the squirrels? Do you allow them to come in when it's hot? No, no. But but that uh, my my wife and my grandbaby Dior would love the squirrels to come in. Uh, <laughs> they would love to. But we did have a very well mannered squirrel. The, the squirrels have not been here because of the extreme heat. But but there was a world well mannered squirrel the other day that just came right up to the back door, kind of put his little foot like little front paw up on the door and kind of just tapped like got any got any nuts come on let's go it's hot out here you know but he's a, he's a polite squirrel well I one of the it. descendants of violetta no doubt one of the descendants of violetta no doubt <laughs> no doubt it's amazing how knowledge is trans now some of the people may not know the story of violetta but violetta was a squirrel who was a rescue squirrel from next door who came over to our bench Right, and would stand on our bench, and Anne would feed Violetta nuts on the bench, and Violetta would be there very politely, and then take her nuts and go. Now, that in itself is not an unusual story, but what is unusual is that after Violetta's passing, I assume she vanished for a while, and then nothing. Another group of squirrels came to the same bench and waited on the same arm of the bench, and those little squirrels also had a notch in their left ear, just mm. like Violetta did. And I'm going like, oh my gosh, was somehow information transferred from generation to generation, somehow through, you know, not through language as we know it, but did Violetta pass the word on down to her kin and children that the bench is the place to get nuts? <laughs> it's wonderful. It was. It was terribly wonderful. Uh, by the way, one of our, uh, our loyal listeners here, uh, Joe uh, from nearby in Orono, sent me a picture when he heard that you were coming on today. He had just opened a new jar of peanut butter and had to mix the oil and was wondering if you might like to help with that. <laughs> no, Carrie, Carrie had the only really life-saving hint on mixing the damn peanut butter. I, you know... My wife and I, we you never know what duties fall on your shoulders. But for me, we've been married 34 years. I have always had to mix the peanut butter. And I'm not good at it. But Carrie told me all you do is you get the little a mixer and put the little fine little twirler on there and stick it in there and buzz it up. And then you get your peanut butter all mixed as opposed to me with a big old spoon sticking it in there and getting the oil hog over the kitchen. So that's worked for you then? You, the the carry method is wisdom incarnate. I, I had to do two, a, a jar of creamy and a jar of crunchy this weekend <laughs> that way. Yes. It's the little, it's the little revolutions that are important in life. Yes. Especially <laughs> when you're indoors because the intense heat, when you, know, you got, Yes. Oh, I was going to say, speaking of intense heat, uh, you, you were telling us before we came on that you, uh, you spent some time in both Salt Lake City and in Albuquerque recently. Right. I, I ended up working in 
Hollywood Midwest. <clears throat> I did two shows in Albuquerque and one in Salt Lake City. And I'm going to drink some water. <clears throat> yeah, you can cut that out of the final take. Absolutely. Oh, I know this is live. <laughs> but it was so hot. Now, I, I did a Loud House, two episodes of Loud House. Now, this is not the cartoon Loud House, but Paramount thought the cartoon was so successful. Right. They would do a live human being Loud House. And so I did two episodes of that in Albuquerque. And while I was in Albuquerque, they asked me if I would do a Hallmark Christmas movie in Salt Lake City. And I don't know. Are you a fan of the are a fan of the Hallmark Christmas movie? I'm going to say not yet, but I'm sure I will be now. Now, <laughs> I am a fan. I am a fan of the Hallmark Christmas movie. And my wife, Anne, is not. You know, we're, we're there. And she goes, why do you watch? I said, well, I love the Hallmark Christmas movies. In fact, one of the greatest days was this last year when they started running the Hallmark Christmas <laughs> movies in February. Right. <laughs> so I had just seen them in December and January, and they started them up again in February. And Anne said, well, they're all the same. And I go, all movies are the same. James Bond movies are all the same. Every kind of, uh, you know, uh, caper movie, they're all the same. Anne likes to watch Forensic Files. That is always the same. <laughs> and Anne now is talking in her sleep. She This is a latest ramification oh, of our dear. marriage. She, speak, she talks in her sleep, and she was saying the other night, Stephen, Stephen, don't murder me and put me in the trunk of the car and set the car on fire. And I went over and whispered to her, baby, I wouldn't do that because they'd still find the DNA. Mm. And if you watch forensic files, 80% of the felons are always the spouse. Oh. So they'd still nail me. So don't worry. <laughs> now, when I watch Hallmark movies, I don't have those kind of dreams at no, all. No. I don't worry about being set on fire. I just, <laughs> you know, the thing about the Hallmark movie, Christmas movie, for the people who don't watch it or don't get it, uh, the Hallmark Christmas movie is always the hero's journey, but more specifically the heroine's journey because it is a woman's tale. Mm. And it's not a big dramatic story. It's always something in their past, either with their family or a love in high school or college that held them up and they have to kind of untangle the knot and that allows them to fall in love at the end. And they always fall in love at the end with the guy who doesn't shave for three days. Now, for some reason, this the character always has like three days of growth. And if, for those of you who've been married for quite a while, you know women love nothing more than to cuddle up with a guy <laughs> with three days growth beard. As the Not, only clean-shaven one in the studio. Yeah, I, I hear that. But but I, I made a huge error. I made a oh. huge error on the Hallmark film is we were shooting outside of Salt Lake in a place called Sandy, Utah. And I assumed when I was going there that I was going to go into a region of snow, like maybe go up in one of the skiing areas, and then they would just carve out a little neighborhood there and we'd film up there. So I took sweaters, jackets, <laughs> warm hats, <laughs> all of this. No, this is how the Hallmark movie is made. You shoot in August in Utah, where the temperatures are 104 to 113. Oof. 
and they put white cloth on the ground where there's going to be snow and they'll add the snow in digitally later. <laughs> but you have to wear winter clothes to assume it's so I spent the last two weeks in a hundred plus degrees wearing five layers of clothing, flannel jackets, scarves, <laughs> big wool hats, gloves. Every day in our in the scene breakdown, they gave us ways to know if you have heat prostration, <laughs> heat exhaustion, or death. And and it's like, you know, I'm seeing the there are five symptoms, you know, and one of which is you stop sweating, and that means you're about to mm. die. And with all the layers of clothes on, I had no idea if I was about to stop sweating. <laughs> I assumed there was something. It was grueling. It was amazing. But we all had a great time, a great cast, great director, and a sweet, sweet script. And I can't wait for <laughs> I can't wait for it to come on TV and for Anne to want to watch Forensic Files instead. <laughs> but Carrie, you made a good point the other day. You know, if 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 this film is a big hit for Stephen. It's a job for the rest of his life, right? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of actors that when they have had success with one of these movies, they they, they get recast. So you, you may become the face of Hallmark Christmas. You know, I had only done one other Hallmark movie before, and it was not a Christmas movie. It was something called Valley of Light. And I just had a small role in it, and I played a world-class fisherman, which, which you love. <laughs> and... I ended up having one of those events happen in my life that is definitive in that I was we were shooting in Sacramento and I was waiting outside the hotel for the car to pick me up and take me to the set. And I was just wearing all my junky clothes, whatever, and had my script with me. And all of a sudden this taxi cab races up and it looked like some sort of Pakistani uh, cab driver. He had a turban on big black mustache and beard, uh, earring, and came running out of the cab and came running up to me and says, are you a jet pilot? Are you a jet pilot? And, and I said, no, no, not a jet pilot. And he runs inside the hotel. I'm standing there still waiting for the car to come, and a jet pilot walks out. <laughs> I know because he has the American Airlines thing with the braids and the hat and the the you know the logo and he stands next to me with his little airline carrying bag and he looks at me and says are you a taxi driver <laughs> <laughs> and it is the life of a it was the life of a character actor completely created uh in in within maybe two minutes it was amazing we're talking with Stephen Tobolowsky here on downtown uh Carrie happened to catch your voice work recently in the new season of Archer. Yeah, I was very oh, happy yeah. uh, with the season three, episode one. I'm like, oh, there's Steven. Good. And it sounds like uh, they're setting you up for some recurring appearances on, on this, the rest of the season. Well, I, I love doing Archer, and it's just unfortunate that in this time I've been doing Archer has also been greatly the period of the pandemic, mm. because when I started doing some Archers, it was beforehand, and everybody would get together in the room. Everybody at the mic and get together in the room, and you could play off of everyone. But now it's, you know, isolation, and, and you're kind of left alone. But it still is a very, very funny show uh, to work on, and, and I love to work on it. I certainly do.
Yeah, the writing on that show is just so crisp and so fast that, that yeah, it, it is a really enjoyable show. It, it's hilarious. I, I ad-libbed uh, on this Archer this time, and everybody loved the ad-lib, but in the ad-lib, I just threw out a name, not a real name, but just a name, throwing it out, and I won't spoil it. If, if they use it or not, I don't know. I just threw the name out. And they all laughed. And then suddenly we got a flag on the play because the producers didn't know if there was clearance to use that name, even though I didn't know who the person was. You know, it's not like I said, Rich Kimball, they could call you. You know, I just said, you know, uh, Bob Jones or something. You know, wait a minute. You know, that name may not be cleared. <laughs> we, we have to make sure that, you know, we don't know if we could use that. So so. Um, it's it's very litigious. <laughs> it's a very litigious <laughs> world we live in. Like I say, uh, have you uh, started work on the new season of the Goldbergs yet? Not yet. Not yet. Um, I hope. I hope I do. You know, it's it's very exciting. You know, doing the tenth season, but I haven't heard anything from them. But I know one way in which the story is going, and it would be great for the fans. I mean, they're going to love it. They're, they're going to love it. So we'll wait and see if they bring me in later in the season. Yeah, uh, you know, I'm fingers crossed. Yeah, yeah, you know, that's the way that works. Why do they I, have I'll, you? I'll, why, why, why do you play so many principles? What is it they see in you? As I, I say this as an educator, what do they see in Stephen Tobolowsky that says school administrator? Tall and bald. <laughs> you cannot beat the tall and bald and glasses combination because I've not only played principals, uh, you know, I played a principal here. I played principal in cartoons. You know, in right. Loud House, I played the principal of, right. the, of the school in principal that cartoon. Principal Huggins. And, and I think in, uh, uh, gosh, I, I did, uh, no, I'm trying to think of something else. I have played so many principals ever since, I guess, my my 50s. I moved from science teacher to, to principals, <laughs> just like I got a, a you know, got moving up the food chain there. And, you know, of all the things we've talked about with you through the years, I don't think we've, we've talked much about your music career. My music career? Your the, early the, days in music? My early days. <laughs> my early days. This was so ridiculous so ridiculous you know we we i was i was in this i guess you call it a group not really there was one real musician in the group and that was bobby foreman he was terrific uh jim rigby who grew up to be a presbyterian minister and me and uh bobby was one of those guys that could play any instrument and was extremely talented and we made up a kind of a folk group and we sang at the Mormon church and we sang around Oak Cliff and we sang at parties and things like that. And we thought we were pretty good. We sang, you know, Michael row the boat ashore and things, things like that. <laughs> anyway, we were picked. Uh, I don't know who picked us to be one of five bands featured on uh, Dallas uh, garage band groups, you know, young little high school groups. And so we went to sing two songs, and who, we, on the way over there, Bobby Foreman 
said, well, we're going to do these two songs. And I asked one of the kids from the neighborhood, Stevie Vaughn, if he would play <laughs> uh, lead guitar on it. I go, Stevie, what? Stevie Vaughn? How old is he? And Bobby says, well, he's 14. 14? We don't need any 14-year-old kids playing on it. And Bobby <laughs> turned around from the front seat and said, Stephen, shut up. Listen, <laughs> this kid is so good, he's going to make us look like we know what we're doing. And I, oh, okay. So we walk into Tempo 2 Studios, and there sitting there is Stevie Vaughn, a.k.a. a young Stevie Ray Vaughn. Uh, little did any of us know at the time, s sitting there, and he goes, so um, so guys, why don't you play me a little bit of your song so I, I can <laughs> see what I'm going to play. And so we started playing a little bit of our song, Red, White, and Blue, and Stevie stopped it after about eight seconds. So, okay, okay, I get it, I get it. So this is like a crappy song. <laughs> what I do like a crappy lead, and then I go into a good lead. And they go, sure, sure, whatever. <laughs> so we recorded it like the Beatles used to record in the early days. That's the only connection I'm going to make with, with, with the Beatles, is that we all stood around two microphones, and we all sang and did the harmony and everything in one take, played the instruments and sang like old-fashioned radio. And then it was time for Stevie to do his lead, and he did his kind of crappy lead into a good lead, and we went, wow, what was that? And the man, the voice behind the glasses, uh, son, uh, that's pretty good. You got another one in you? <laughs> and Stevie goes, well, sure. So he stood up, and then he did another lead, smoking lead. And then he, he and the, the man behind the glass says, uh, we can do a couple more. What, what do you got? He says, well, do you want something like Clapton or you want something like Hendrix? Uh, take your pick. <laughs> so Stevie did another one. Now, I'm a fly on the wall, and I'm watching this, and I am stunned. And I'm looking back through the glass, and I see the man who's recording run out and yell down the hallway and make a gesture. Come on, come on. You got to see this. You got to see this. <laughs> and the room started to fill up with other grownups. Now, I'm 19 years old at the time, and all the grown-ups stand there, and the look on our face is like watching the birth of a baby gorilla at the zoo. <laughs> Everybody is standing there. Their jaws are open. They're staring at Stevie Ray playing these leads, these amazing leads, and our faces were lit with, like, from on high. It was the first time any of us had experienced the real thing, and by the real thing, I mean real genius. It, and when I saw it, when I heard it, it changed me. And I began to think, oh, this is possible in the world, this genius. And uh, that happened to be the first studio recording of Stevie Ray Vaughan. <laughs> it didn't help us because we had to sell it door to door, you know, like Girl Scout could, hello, would someone like to buy our album? You know, uh, it's the first studio recording of Stevie Ray Vaughan on our two records. Wow. And uh, I saw Stevie Ray one more time, and that was I was working with his brother Jimmy, Jimmy Vaughan, when I was in Memphis doing Great Balls of Fire. And Jimmy and I would go to the Kiva re recording studios where Eric Clapton did some of Layla. And 
we just took over the studio because we're doing great balls of fire and we had Jerry Lee Lewis with us and, you know, we could do anything we wanted, you know? And so we would record all of our little songs and things that we had come up with and it was dawn and Jimmy and I went to get breakfast and there sitting at this diner was Stevie Ray. And so we go to the back table where, where Stevie is and we all sit down and it was at that table that Jimmy and Stevie, who had had a rift, sought to make it up. And Jimmy said, brother, all I want to do is play with you. Mm -hmm. And as it turned out, when we finished Great Balls of Fire, Stevie was going to play with Eric Clapton at a concert and said to Jimmy, would you like to play with us on stage? And so Jimmy and Stevie, they went and they played with Eric Clapton at the end of uh, great, w the end of our shooting. And that was when Stevie jumps on the helicopter at the end. And then Connie Crouch, uh, Jimmy's wife, jumps on the helicopter. And the helicopter pilot says, uh, sorry, ma'am, too much weight. You know, you'll have to get off. He got off. And then Jimmy Vaughn says, where my wife goes, I go. And Jimmy got off the helicopter. And that was the end of Stevie. The <sighs> helicopter didn't even make altitude and then a crash and jimmy ended up putting that album together that he did with stevie finally uh i think it's family it's a double album uh family affair mm -hmm. I, if you have imdb you'll see what that which, which album that was and uh he he was producing and he did it as an act of mourning uh putting that together that they finally got to play together and they finally got the dream of playing with eric clapton well that's an incredible story how did uh, how did you and Beth get together with David Byrne? Oh, I think you, you know uh, Beth. <laughs> Beth was an actress who never could get cast in anything. Yet, uh, and we were at the University of Illinois, and she said, "Well, maybe I shouldn't be an actress. Maybe I should be a writer instead, a playwright instead." I go, "Sure, baby, whatever." Or a dental hygienist. You know, <laughs> it'd be good if one of us had an income. That would be great. <laughs> And and so her first full-length play won the Pulitzer Prize for drama. There you go. Crimes of the Heart. And so Beth suddenly went from being someone who was an actress who didn't get any work to a Pulitzer Prize-winning writer. Her play was big hit in New York. It ran uh, for quite a while off-Broadway, then moved on-Broadway, ran for over a year, maybe two years, and got, got a movie deal. And so everybody wanted Beth uh, to, to write their screenplays. And a lot of people wanted to do the screenplay of Crimes of the Heart. They wanted to get a hold of that. And one of them, I think, was Jonathan Demme. Mm -hmm. uh, Jonathan really loved Beth's writing and wanted to get a piece of that. And uh, Jonathan at the time was doing Stop Making Sense, one of the greatest oh. – rock and roll yep. movies ever made if you haven't seen it. And so I was not familiar with the talking heads that much. And Beth and I were at Pilates class in LA before it was cool. I should mention <laughs> we were just doing it because we were cool and we were coming out of Pilates and Jonathan's car pulls up and says, Hey guys, I'm about to screen uh, a rough cut of stop making sense at the Academy. You want to come see it? And so we go, sure, Jonathan, sure. So we jumped in our car and followed them over to the Academy. The Academy is a 1900-seat theater, right? 
and there were about nine people in there. There were the talking heads, uh, Jonathan Timmy, Jonathan's wife, Evelyn, Beth, and I. That was pretty much it, pretty much it in this. And David Byrne was sitting right behind me, uh, Jonathan's, and David kept watching, you know, my reactions. You know, you, you watch <laughs> the reactions. I have cat fur on my nose. This is why I keep rubbing my nose. It's because of the damn cat. So, so David keeps watching, and after the movie, in which I was introduced not only to the talking heads and to their music, which was phenomenal, but also in probably the greatest theater you could possibly watch a musical motion picture in with all the stereophonic sound that the Academy had. It was fantastic. I was blown away. So we went to dinner that night and David was saying, so tell me, um, what did you not like about the movie? And, and I go, well, David, I like, no, no, I, I, I do not want compliments. If you could just tell me, tell me what it is. I go, well, David, I liked everything. I liked everything. I really <laughs> loved it. It was a really terrific movie. And the way Jonathan built it is, was fabulous. It is just spectacular. And then he said, do you have a swimming pool in your backyard? And I go, well, yeah, we do. We do. Now we do. He says, well, I'm doing a video for MTV Road to Nowhere, would it be possible to use your swimming pool? Now, this was before I was hep to lawsuits or anything <laughs> like that. We said, sure, come on, bring the whole crew up, you know, jump in the pool. You know, no no one's going to sue us, I know. And and so we were in the uh, – they, they were – and when you go on the Internet and if you watch Road to Nowhere – the, the MTV video, the swimming pool footage is our swimming pool in the Hollywood Hills. And so that was, I, I said, well, David, I'm going to barbecue a little salmon or something. Do you guys want something to eat? Oh, salmon would, would be fine. Thank you. And so I start barbecuing all this salmon. And Beth said, well, what are you working on next? And he said, well, I'm working on this movie that we're calling True Stories. See, whenever the band, we go out on the road, we always stop at 7-Eleven or whatever to get coffee. And they always have these magazines there, Weekly World News, uh, you know, uh, Alien uh, Making Love to a Weed Whacker. <laughs> you know, they have all these stories that are listed as true stories. So we wanted to do a movie that had all of these characters that had true stories in it uh, that uh, – were completely unverified. And, <laughs> and so Beth said, well, you ought to talk to my sweetie, which means me. You ought to talk to my sweetie because he can hear tones. And, uh, you know, he, he sees tones and, he, you know, he, he reads tones. And David looked at me and says, you read tones? And I go, oh, oh, this is so embarrassing. <laughs> it's, it's a story from so long ago. Uh, you know, I was, I was in movement class my sophomore year of college and we were on a retreat and our movement teacher took us out to a lake and said i want we're going to go in a circle and say the first thing that comes to your mind and lord of the rings the book this way before any movie was big and so they said well tell us the first thing in your mind and people were going around going hobbit frodo <laughs> frodo gandalf elf and they're going around the circle and it gets to me and suddenly I hear this tone in my head 
And I open my mouth and I say to the teacher, I said, I get you're not who you say you are, uh, that your real name has the initials JK or JL, and you're operating under an assumed name. And then everybody went around. There was a little bit of silence and people were going around the circle going weed, beer, Gandalf, Gandalf, Frodo, <laughs> Frodo, Gandalf. And, and that was the end of, of that exercise. And then I was going to my car instead of spending the night being mosquito bait. I was going to my car and the teacher came out of the shadows and said, Stephen, why did you say what you said? I said, I don't know. I just heard this tone in my head and I opened my mouth and that's what it meant. That's what, he says, because it's true. I have an assumed name and my initials are JK, like you said. So how did you know that? I said, I don't know. So I went back and told Beth the story of what happened because she's a year behind me. And she said, do I make a sound? Do I make a tone? And I go, yes, baby, everybody does. <laughs> but yours, uh, usually men's tones are higher than women's. Usually women's tones are, are uh, in a lower range than men's. Most people have one tone, but you have three. And they're all in the male range, but they're a major triad. Uh, and I'm not exactly sure what that means, but I feel the one three means that there is a uh, spiritual convergence in your character. And one five is that you, you live according to a very structured life. And she said, we are going to be rich. <laughs> Do you realize what? Well, it doesn't matter. We're going to go to the school. We're going to charge people. Money. You just say that. Just say whatever you just said there. I have no idea what that was. I didn't know. Just say about the tones and the range they are. This is fantastic. We could charge a quarter. We could even charge a <laughs> dollar for each person you'd read tones for. And we'll, and that money, we did that. <laughs> Beth would bring victims to me, and I would hold their hands <laughs> and listen for tones and identify their tones. And that is... And that we kept that money in a jar. I think we made about $16 and we <laughs> kept that money in a jar for years. And uh, that was the story I told David Byrne cooking the salmon. And uh, later he, he wanted to hire Beth and me to write the screenplay of True Stories, which we did. We had like 19 days to do it. We gave it to him, then didn't hear from David for months. And I'm riding my car, driving in my car in the Hollywood Hills, and up beside me comes David Byrne on a bicycle. And he starts knocking on my window at a stop sign. Da, 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 da. He goes, sorry, I haven't been in touch. We've been on the road and there have been a lot of rewrites to true stories, but uh, are you going to be home soon? And I go, sure, while well, going to come by, I want you to hear something. So I went home and then David Byrne came over later with his guitar and uh, sat, sat down and uh, sang, uh, boy, it's in the movie now. Uh, Radiohead? Radiohead. Saying Radiohead, it was in true, he put it in true stories, <laughs> Radiohead. And he said, uh, this is the song I came up with for, because of your story. And years later, uh, on a Friday, the group on a Friday in England loved 
David's movie and loved Radiohead, and they changed their name from On a Friday to Radiohead. And so that was my entree <laughs> into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. You know, we have Stevie Ray Vaughan. He made it. David Byrne, he made it. I, I didn't, but I was, I was cheering from the sidelines. You're there in spirit, absolutely. Totally in spirit. Well, Stephen, it's uh, great to talk with you. Oh, by the way, I wanted to mention, too, I was so excited to see that Anne was directing uh, a play by friend of our show, Monica Wood. Oh, well, it's, it's very exciting. And uh, it, Monica's a wonderful writer. And it, it's very exciting. And Anne is just picking up a lot of uh, momentum. Besides being so good, she's able to work with a lot of new plays and, and bring them to life, which is a special skill. But that's just because she's such a good actress. And, and so she could kind of get into the skin of the different characters and advise the playwrights as to maybe because the new plays always need a little work here and there. You know, maybe if you brought this out or maybe if you took this down, some, she's a great conductor. And uh, it, it's very exciting that she's kind of just taking off. She has uh, one play that she's going to be doing at the Kirk Douglas Theater here, uh, a new play uh, that she's going to be doing a reading of in their series, I think next week or something. She's just on fire here. That's wonderful. Yeah. Well, our best to, to both of you. Thank you. I'll have to put her in the green bathroom if she stays on. <laughs> <laughs> Bringing it back full circle. The mark of a true pro right there. Stephen, thank you so much. My pleasure, Rich. My pleasure. And uh, thank Kashmir for being so well behaved. Very well. But <laughs> shedding. Shedding, the little fella. All right. You get that off your nose. And uh, we look right. forward to seeing you soon. Thank you, Stephen. Love to you. Bye-bye. Man, always great, Carrie, when uh, Tobo pays a visit, but some exceptional stories <laughs> that time around. Yes, I always enjoy the storytelling, and uh, that, that, that was a chalk block full of stories, just great ones. And it, it always amazes me, even as many times as we've had, and, and I've listened to his entire uh, series of uh, the Tobolowski Files, Every time I hear him start telling a story, the, the connections that he's made over his career just are astounding. I mean, again, starting when he was a teenager. Right, right. And I feel like, you know, we could just throw out a word, you know, tomato. And, and he would roll in right off the top of his head to, mm. to a beautiful story. He's uh, so great at it and, and, and such a fun guest. We love having him on our program. Stephen Tobolowski, our thanks to him. Thanks to the wonderful Paul Reiser as well, and to you for joining us this week right here on Downtown, the podcast.